You're listening to the City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. All right, well, good morning. Good to be back with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. It's a little strange saying that. We've been opening our Bibles to 1 John uh, for the last several months. And of course, we finished that right before uh, I was gone two weeks ago. We've got some really great things planned for this summertime and certainly in the fall as well. But uh, this morning, I want to just park here in really verses 3 and 4 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, Emma read uh, 3 through 7, which was initially my intention was to preach through that whole passage. And then as I uh, got working more and more through this, I realized I just have time. Uh, And so we're going to just pretty much land on verses three and four, but I want to share with you some really some prayers that I have for us uh, as a church body. I didn't make it super widely known, uh, at least from the stage while I was gone, but as uh, Emma mentioned at the welcome, I have been in the UK for the last two weeks. I got back yesterday, uh, spent a few days in London, uh, spent some time in Edinburgh and St. Andrews, Scotland, and uh, and then about a week in Oxford. And I was given a unique opportunity through the seminary where I study in the PhD program to study the theology of British Reformation, which is a fascinating field of study. Most of you are probably familiar with the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther and Wittenberg and all of that, Uh, but the ripple effects of Luther's work begin to make their way over to England and Scotland as well. And and, uh, so we were able to see some really important historical markers that sort of framed what was going on in the 16th century there uh, in England and Scotland. Really amazing time. Uh, There were some martyr sites in Scotland in particular that were were really uh, just very heavy, honestly really sobering. Uh, and then, uh, of course, that week at Regents Park College in, in Oxford, studying a, a very specific group that comes out of the Reformation that we call dissenters or English separatists. These are people who... <clears throat> historically not only rejected the Pope as the head of the Roman Catholic Church, but through the Reformation also began to reject the King as the head of the Church of England, beginning with Henry VIII. And this dissenting group... <clears throat> was determined more than anything else to fight for the freedom of conscience for every human being. Uh, It's a very ragtag group of people, very non-uniform. There were lots of subgroups within this uh, dissenting group. Some of the the groups that come out of that are the Quakers. You might have heard of them. Uh, You may have heard of, obviously, Presbyterianism. Presbyterians come out of that. One of the groups that comes out of this dissenting group are the Baptists, (laughs) our people. Right. So people often assume, incorrectly, that as Baptists, we descend from Anabaptists, and that is actually not true. Uh, Certainly, we're influenced to some degree by the Anabaptists, but uh, we come out of English separatism, a a descent against not only Rome, uh, but against the crown as well. And there there are a lot of criticisms that are levied against Baptists today, Uh, some of them rightfully so, right? We, we earn our licks sometimes, but one of the things that we do get right is our commitment to the lordship of Jesus Christ over every human conscience and our unwillingness to yield to anyone other than Jesus. That is a very good thing, I think. And so what I want to do this morning is perhaps a little bit different than what I normally do. I want to share with you four characteristics 
of what I believe it means to be a godly man or woman in the church that I pray that the Lord will develop further in us as we continue this year and on. Characteristics that come right out of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. I've titled the message today, How to Be a Decent Dissenter. How to Be a Decent Dissenter. Here's the reality is that living in the world that you live in today will require at some level for you as a Christian to dissent against something. So if you're living your faith, just let me just, if you're living your faith out in society and culture, wherever you are, and you never take issue with anything that is happening around you, there is a disconnect at some point between your faith and reality. Because living a life yielded to the Lordship of Jesus requires you to dissent, but Here's where we usually get it wrong. We use, so there's two different sides to this. You either have people who do no dissenting, they just sort of affirm everything. By the way, I, I gotta share with this, this is not in my notes, but uh, an article was sent to me this morning uh, <clears throat> out of Texas Christian University who is offering in the fall a class on queer art of drag where they argue that gender binary is a form of white supremacy. Now, I'm not even gonna comment on, on that. But what I will say is that this is what happens when you don't do any dissenting. When, when there is no line, you, there's no line, and, and everything is, is up for grabs. On the opposite side of that, though, where more conservative Christians typically fall is a desire to live in dissent um, separate from the heart of Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit. So, so what we want to do is we want to talk through this passage this morning about how we live out the convictions of our faith, as our historical forefathers did, but to do so in a manner that reflects the heart, the love, the, the, the kindness, the mercy of Jesus to the world around us. Now, as always, let's jump, before we jump into the text, let me give you some context of this passage. Uh, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, it's written to young Timothy, one of his, probably his main protege. Uh, Paul also wrote to Timothy in his first letter that we now call First Timothy. The second letter uh, was written likely during the final missionary trip in Rome of Paul. He was later arrested and of course martyred after this. So keep this in mind, this letter that we're about to begin reading here was written by Paul at the end of his life. This is a much older, more mature version of Paul. He's seen a lot of things by this point. He has suffered a tremendous amount for the name of Jesus in his lifetime. He knew his time was running out as well. He knew that he was gonna die soon. He tells us that in this letter, four chapters later, 2 Timothy 4, six through seven, he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. So he knew. Time is running out. I am about to die. I am about to suffer martyrdom for the name of Jesus. Death is imminent, but it doesn't shake him though. Look what he says in verse seven. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He knew for certain that he would see Jesus when he died. He had assurance of his salvation. So Paul is near death. He's suffered a lot. He's been beaten, stoned, attacked, arrested. And that is the context that 2 Timothy is written in to encourage Timothy to continue to pastor and shepherd the people of God and to continue to preach and teach the gospel of Christ to the lost. That's the context Paul is writing in. So with that being said, let's read together. It's just two verses, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Paul says this, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers both day and night. As I remember your tears... 
I long to see you that I might be filled with joy. Let me share with you four characteristics of what I think it means to be a decent dissenter that come right out of this text, that, that, I, that my prayer is, as your pastor, that, that God would develop in us as a church body. And, and I'm going to just say, you know, uh, off the bat, before we jump into this first point, uh, I, I was up for about 24 hours yesterday. I have a head cold. I'm jet lagged. And I have never been more excited to be with my people here at City on a Hill. Yeah. So if I say something crazy, I'm going to blame it on that, not... I don't normally have an excuse. So I'm just, I'm seizing the moment is what I'm saying here, right? Here's the first characteristic of a decent dissenter, that we would be grateful to God in all circumstances. Yeah. Look at verse three. He says, I thank God whom I serve. This is how he begins the letter. I mean, he, he has his little salutation at the beginning of the letter, but the first actual thing he actually says to Timothy is, I thank God whom I serve. Paul was a man of gratitude. Now, this may seem kind of non-controversial, but again, remember the context that we just talked through in this letter. Paul's a church planner, right? And if you know anything about church planning, it's the most difficult form of ministry you can do. It is, it is so, so challenging to be a church planter, especially in a nation uh, that is very resistant to the faith. Beyond that, again, Paul had suffered a tremendous amount at this point in his life. Let me just read his words from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. He says this, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. You will never hear that on TVN. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. He is saying, things were so bad for us that we actually thought we were, we were going to die. We believed that God had given us a death sentence. We, we were sentenced to death. That sounds hopeless. That's not the kind of like gospel encouraging message that you hope to hear when you come to church, right? Life feels like the death sentence, amen? But look at what he says after that. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Look at me, there are things in your life that you are going to feel powerless over and it is because you are powerless over them. You are powerless over many, if not everything in your life. And when you finally figure that out and you admit powerlessness over those things, you find out that those difficult things in your life were actually meant to press you not further away from Jesus, but to press you into Jesus so that you rely on his strength, not your own strength, and that you move according to his plan, not your own plan. Look what he says elsewhere, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That's, that's being beaten nearly to death. That's what that practice is. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of my churches. This is not the description of your best life now. It's just not. 
Now, hear me when I say this. It's important for you to catch this. I'm not suggesting to you that your experience should mirror Paul's. Okay, so please get that. Paul is a unique figure in the, in the New Testament. Extreme suffering was the will of God for Paul. You remember Jesus' words? They're some of the most haunting words in the New Testament concerning the apostle. He says in Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16, he says, go. He's talking to Ananias, by the way. So remember, Paul has on the Damascus road, he's just been blinded, blinded by the light, wrapped up like, never mind. Uh, he, so he's, <clears throat> he's sent to uh, the city where Ananias is going to pray for him that he might receive back his sight and be added to the church. And Ananias has some problems with this. He's like, you, you really want to unblind Paul? He's better blind. It's going to be a lot, it's going to be a lot harder for him to put us to death if he can't see us, right? And this is what Jesus says to him. This is verses uh, 15 and 16. He says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That is not the call of God you want in your life. Paul was a uniquely called individual to suffer for the purposes of the gospel. We are not all Paul. I want you to get that. Some of you will suffer more. That may shock you. Some of you will suffer less. The point of this is really not even the suffering of Paul. It's to point you to the reality that in spite of his suffering, he begins his letter by saying, I thank the God whom I serve. Regardless of the circumstances that you find yourself in, regardless of the things that are happening in your life that you find painful or challenging or difficult, the prayer that we must pray for the people here at this church is that God would make us, in spite of those things, grateful. That we would remember the price paid for us, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Gratitude is an essential element of being a decent dissenter because it allows for you to call into question those things that would violate your conscience before God, but to do so in a manner of humility and gratitude. That's the first step to being a, a decent dissenter. Here's the second one, that we would be fully submitted to Jesus. Verse three, I'm gonna read it again, but a little further this time. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. There are two things about this that really strike me that I wanna just sort of talk through here. Uh, the first phrase is, as did my ancestors. I, I love that, I, I don't know why that, that is so uh, powerful to me when I read that, but, but Paul uh, was a, a proud of his heritage. He was proud of his people. Now, who are his people? Israel, right? The Israelites. Paul is Jewish. He is uh, a very proud Jewish man. Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, he says, this is talking about his qualifications as a, as a Jewish person. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's saying it. There, there's no one who has more qualifications as a proud Israelite than I. Loves his people, loves his ancestors, and, and, and loves to minister and share the gospel and is broken by Israel's rejection of the Messiah. But he loved his people. He loved the Hebrew scripture. He talks about the scripture a lot. Graphe the, 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 is the Greek term in the New Testament for scripture. And every time we find this word, the writings, the scriptures, it refers to the Old Testament. Because remember, the New Testament is not, is not fully developed at this point. So, so he loves his people. He loves the scripture. And I, and I think it's sometimes easy to think that these are things that exist in the Bible, but not necessarily in reality, right? They're a part of my, 
of my spiritual life or the sacred history, but we don't really think about them in terms of secular history. But history attests to these things very clearly. One of the, one of the wonderful parts about our trip was, uh, I think, day two. We uh, were given the opportunity to go to both the, uh, the British Library, the King's Library, and uh, the British Museum. Uh, which is one of the most profound places. You could spend days in that museum with all of the things that they have. But I want to show you a few pictures that illustrate this idea of ancestry in Israel from a secular perspective. This first picture is known as the Black Obelisk of Shalmaneser III. Uh, This is a um, first description of, or or, I'm sorry, portrayal. You can't really see it in this picture. If you get up closer, there are uh, line by line little uh, portraits of of different things happening. And in one of those, we see uh, King Yehu from 2 Kings 9 and 10 uh, standing before Shalmaneser III. This is the first portrayal in human history of an Israelite. So they had been written about prior to this, but this is the first time we see a depiction of an Israelite. Uh, This black obelisk of Shalmaneser III dates to 850 BC. So this is 850 years before Jesus. This is very old, very, very old. Uh, The next one is uh, an account from Sennacherib. This is an Assyrian stone and it is written. uh, Those are all typescript. You can't obviously, you couldn't read it if you were up close. It's it's in Assyrian, but um, it's... uh, (laughs) It's from 694 BC, and this describes Assyria's siege against Jerusalem, the sacking of Jerusalem, the sacking of Judah, which the Old Testament accounts for us. Uh, It also talks about the rebuilding of Nineveh, the city that we find in the minor prophet Jonah. Uh, And so this is, again, these are two, these are not Christian Jewish pieces. Uh, These are Assyrian, they are secular, but they testify to the, at least the existence of Israel and Jerusalem and King Yehu and Nineveh and all the things that we find in our Old Testament Bibles. Uh, last is this, this, honestly, it made me tear up when I saw it. <clears throat> this is Codex Sinaiticus. This is the uh, oldest full, fully bound New Testament in Greek that we have in existence. Uh, this is from the third century. So about 300 years after the time of Jesus. Uh, We have much older New Testament copies uh, that go back into the first century, but they're not fully bound. They're like a papyrus of maybe a part of Gospel of John or or a part of Paul's letter. This is a full collection of the entire New Testament in Greek, along with some Old Testament in Greek as well, what we call the Septuagint. So when Paul talks about, you know, my, my ancestors, this is what he has in mind. When he talks about scripture, this is what he has in mind. These are historical things. They, they really exist. We, we read these in the Bible and it's easy to just kind of think of it in like biblical terms. This is what the Bible says, but no, no, history attests to these things. These are real things in the world around us. But beyond that, he talks about having a clear conscience. And, and, and this is a fundamental part of not only Paul's ministry, uh, but the ministry that, that began to take place during the Reformation as well. This term conscience, uh, it's the Greek term sunedesis. It's a, a word that, that means something like one's inward moral impression of one's actions and principles. So it's, it's kind of the inner, the inner governor or the inner feeling uh, with regard to how you act, how you behave, what you think. It's your conscience. I mean, I think it's a great translation, the conscience, the inward faculty of moral judgment. What Paul's getting at here is that, that with a clean conscience, it means that he can serve God without a sense of guilt, right? He, he's not compromised. He, he's, not, 
he doesn't feel a sense of shame or guilt for either not doing something that God called him to do or for doing something that he was not permitted to do. In other words, Paul was intent on serving Christ and on him alone, and nothing would get in his way. Nothing would stand to compromise him in his convictions. He wouldn't answer to religious authorities. He wouldn't answer to political authorities, which, uh, you know, throughout the world history, apart from our American experience, are typically intertwined together. Uh, No individual or body of individuals would tell him otherwise if it meant compromising the lordship of Christ over his life. He did so respectfully, he did so peacefully, but his conscience was bound to Christ. Now this is one of the most important aspects of Reformation history, specifically British Reformation history. Uh, You begin with the authority of the Pope as the head of the Catholic Church. Uh, If you're familiar with with this British Reformation history at all, King Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife Catherine of Aragon in order to provide a male heir. He ends up marrying Anne Boleyn. He also marries two other women after that. He's a little bit of a mess. But because he is tied to the Catholic Church at this time, divorce is not allowed. And so through the the, uh, sort of intermingling of Luther's works into a body of other people, they begin to split off from Rome and Anglicanism or the Church of England is born. But this, this creates another issue because for people who are unwilling to submit to the head of the Catholic Church, the Pope, now they've just replaced the Pope with the king. The king is now the head of the church. And so this group of dissenters rejected the lordship of anyone but Jesus Christ, and they paid heavily for it. While we were in London, we visited uh, Bunhill Cemetery, also known as Bone Hill, which was a non-consecrated burial ground. So during this time, if you die as a Christian, you wanna be buried in a consecrated area that has been consecrated by the church. Um, and, and, and so if you were a dissenter or a separatist like these men, you were sort of buried out in, in crappy land uh, where no one knew where you were. Uh, I've got a picture here to start with of the headstone of John Bunyan. Uh, he was a dissenter during this time. If you're familiar with the Pilgrim's Progress, uh, he's the author of that. Um, there were two Puritan preachers there as well that I don't have pictured. Uh, uh, John Owen and Thomas Goodwin are, are buried here as well. Daniel Defoe, author of Robinson Crusoe, is buried here. John Gill, famous Baptist, uh, was buried here. The next picture is actually a, uh, a headstone of, I'll do it on this screen because I can actually show you. Um, it's this one here. It's kind of off. You couldn't get up close to it. But this is the gravestone of Isaac Watts. A famous hymn writer who wrote Joy to the World and When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Uh, If you're familiar, we've always sung Joy to the World here several times. It was written by Isaac Watts, buried here. These are people who died as dissenters and because of their unwillingness to subject themselves to the authority or the lordship of the king, the crown, uh, they were buried off away from society because they were nonconformists. They were unwilling to subject themselves to the the headship of anyone but Christ. Now, after uh, the Reformation took place, a couple hundred years after that, God began working in another church in Southwark, London, a place called New Park Street Baptist Church that was formerly pastored by John Gill, very well-known Baptist uh, preacher. And then before that, Benjamin Keach, another very well-known Baptist preacher. But in 1854, they began dwindling in size. They were in need of a new preacher. 
And so they called a very young 19-year-old uh, to come and preach. And the people loved him so much, they asked him to come back that night, and then they continued to ask him to come and preach. And after three months of him preaching there, uh, the church was, was very excited to call him as their next full-time pastor to preach in this church. The church began to explode with growth, and that preacher's name was uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Uh, Charles Spurgeon is, uh, I've got a picture, a portrait of him. Go ahead and, yeah. Uh, it's an original painting that hangs now in uh, the church where after that church grew, they couldn't, they couldn't keep the number of people they had in one room, so they built the building that still exists today known as the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And uh, we have a picture of that as well, the pulpit that Spurgeon preached from. There's been some renovations in there, but it's still uh, pretty, pretty much the same pulpit that he preached from. I could keep going. There's so many names in England that demonstrate the utter necessity of maintaining the lordship of Christ over their life above anything else. All of them had consciences held captive to Christ. So here's my question for you this morning. Who holds your conscience captive? Who holds your conscience captive? Who is truly Lord over your life? You, I mean, we can say Jesus is Lord. It's the Bible belt. It's part of our birthright, right? But I mean, but, but who is truly your Lord in your life? Because listen to me, standing for Jesus, standing for truth is going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. It costed these men sometimes everything, but it's going to cost you something. It may cost you your social status. It may cost you your friends. It may cost you your jobs. It may cost you your well-being. It may cost you your family. You may come out of a family that's not Christian, and they, might, they may not want nothing to do with you after you stand on the principles, on the truth of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. For many of these individuals, it cost them their lives because they were unwilling to budge. They were unwilling to say, I'll move a little bit. They will not compromise. They did it, they did it decently. They did it with, with humility. They did it with gratitude in their hearts for what God was doing in their lives and the lives of the people around them, but they would not budge. They were unwilling to compromise. What are the famous words of Luther? In the, in the Deed of Worms, 1512, he says, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils because they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. He goes on to close this speech with the most famous words of this portion. He says, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God, amen. That's a man submitted to Christ. The question is, are you? Are you submitted to Christ? You can't be a decent dissenter without actually dissenting, without actually standing for something. What's the old saying? If you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. We must be submitted to Jesus in all things, at all times, no matter the consequences. Here's the third way to be a decent dissenter. We are committed to prayer. Look at verse three again, we'll read the entirety. He says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Prayer was essential to Paul. It was a, it's an essential part of the, really the Christian life, right? It's, it's the beginning of every major work of God throughout human history. It always begins with prayer. Revivalism, we talk all the time about like, man, I wish God would, would do a revival and, you know, and, and, and rebirth a Christian you know, uh, love and, and in our country and, and then like we don't pray about it. Right, like this, every major revival begins with prayer. Notice what Paul says, I remember you constantly, 
constantly in my prayers, day and night. That means that if you want to fully obey the Bible, you never sleep. You just pray. I'm just kidding. That's not what it means. The idea here is that as you live your life, you live it patterned around the practice of prayer. It becomes a a natural rhythm in your life. Regardless of what time it is, regardless of what you're doing, prayer makes its way in. That's the idea. There's so much I could say about this topic. We don't have time to, I mean, we could do a whole series on prayer. Maybe we will today, but, but for our purposes this morning, I want, you to, I want you to consider the premium you place on prayer in your life. It doesn't have to be ornate. It doesn't have to be like this big thing, right? It, there's, I think, a, a large amount of evidence that like the normative practice of prayer is typically more uh, individualistic anyways. Uh, there is corporate prayer, corporate prayer matters, but, but the, the idea that Christians are in the day-to-day moving about their business, praying without ceasing, that's the terminology Paul uses, is, is very prevalent in the New Testament. If we really believe prayer works, we ought to pray. If we really believe that God works through prayer, we ought to pray. We ought to pray in all, in all times and in all manners. Another major figure that we saw, talked about while we were there, is a figure known as William Carey. William Carey is the father of modern missions movement. Uh, first picture here is a picture of his desk. Um, Carey was the individual that famously took the gospel to India. Uh, he was not formerly educated, which is remarkable because he translated the Bible in, I think, like seven different languages in India. Uh, he was completely self-taught, completely brilliant, but he pastored a small church in only England for about three to four years before taking the gospel to India. We went and saw the church where he uh, preached at. Uh, we saw the, uh, he was a, uh, while he was pastoring and preaching, he was a leather worker. He'd make shoes, leather shoes, and walk into town and sell them and then get more leather and, and do this back and forth until they finally paid him enough to just be a full-time minister. The next picture is a, a trough in his home. Oh, no, sorry, go, go one more. Uh, this is a trough where he would soak the leather before he'd begin working on it. So this is actually the place where William Carey made shoes. Um, wasn't formally educated, as I said. Go back one and show that, that map. Uh, this is the cleanest picture I could show you um, because it's really quite offensive. He, everyone is a pagan. Uh, he describes the different types of people around the world in terms that are less than PC today. Uh, but this is, I don't think we should read into that, that he was like some sort of bigoted individual. He literally gave his life to go overseas and serve the people of India and, and give them the gospel. Uh, he founded Serampore University, first actual accredited school in India ever. Uh, that was a degree awarding school. And he died in India. Uh, he, he, lived his, he lived out his days there. Um, he had a heart to get the gospel to the lost. He was committed to it. He, uh, his famous work that he wrote was called, and I love this. This will, tell, again, tell you the kind of the heart of Carrie, but with maybe the non-PC uh, attitude. His book is called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. <laughs> oh, I love that. Not the most PC of, way of saying it, but again, he uh, was a profound figure. The couch that he reportedly died on, he was, fell ill and, and died in India, is actually being kept at, and I didn't know this, Ryan is here with me this morning, he's one of our colleagues at Southwestern. We stayed at Regent Parks College uh, while we were in Oxford. The couch where Kerry died is at Regent, Regent Parks College. Uh, I think it's down in the Angus Library. I didn't see that while I was there, but it is there. Kerry uh, once said, and I love this, he said, one of the first and most important of those duties which are incumbent upon us as Christians is fervent 
and united prayer. Kerry actually believed that prayer was the means by which God would unite multiple denominations of people for the purposes of gospel ministry. So Kerry was under, he had no problems with working with anyone and everyone of all stripes. It didn't matter if you were Presbyterian or if you were this, you didn't even have to be a Christian. If you were, if you were someone that could typeface or you could uh, do some sort of skill that would bring money in to support his ministry, he was like, fine, yeah, come on in. Because I, whatever it takes to get the gospel out. He was extremely committed to this idea of bringing the gospel to the lost. And it, begun, it begins with, in his mind, prayer. So what I want to encourage you to do is I want you to commit this morning to, to begin praying, to begin letting prayer become a rhythm of your life. And, and I want you to specifically pray that, that the work of the ministry here would continue and, and increase and increase, that we would reach more and more people for the purpose of Jesus, that we would get the help, hope, and healing of Christ into the lives of the hurting and the loss that God brings to us here at City on a Hill and that God leads you to in the world whether that's in the workplace or in your family or, or wherever else, that you would be burdened for those in your life that need Jesus and that you would begin to love them and share with them the hope that you have in him. One of the famous lines, the most famous line of William Carey, I love this, was expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. I love that. That is how he lived his life. And that'll preach, but listen to me, it only works if it begins with prayer. It only works when we begin with prayer. Here's one final way that you can live as a decent dissenter, that you are empathetic to suffering. Look at verse four. Paul says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Paul empathized with Timothy. He didn't sympathize with him, he empathized with him. There's a difference. Empathy. Is, is a kind of sympathy that's born out of experience. So I can sympathize with you if I don't really know what you're feeling. I can empathize with you if I've walked through pain like that. And I love the nuance here. He says that, that he's filled with joy. This, this is a Greek term, plurao, and it's a word that means actually to fully fill. Something that is partially full, but is fully filled. So understand that our joy as Christians comes from the Lord, from Christ, right? But the idea here is that it is brought into its fullest measure when we share in the sufferings of Christ and the suffering of his people as well. Paul goes on in verse 8, a little bit later, he says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Practically, what it means is that you are not only to comfort others as they suffer around you, but that you are to share your sufferings with others that you might be comforted. And I believe that in our context here at City on the Hill, this happens primarily first in the context of freedom groups. Freedom groups, this is one of the reasons why we do this, is that it gives you a safe place to let go of the things that are burdening you, that the shame, the guilt, the things that the enemy wants to use to tear you down, that, that you would have a place to confess that sin and, and, and begin to release that and, and be welcomed and loved and comforted by those who empathize with you in that suffering. But here is something that I want to be very clear about because I, I don't know that everyone is always clear about this. <clears throat> this kind of suffering happens first in the freedom group process, but it was never intended to stay there. It was never intended to stay there. 
The idea is that you would begin to learn the freedom that comes from this kind of vulnerability and transparency, and that you would leave that freedom group environment and take it into your Bible study, and take it into your Sunday school, and take it into your life group, and take it into your workplace, and take it into the schools, and take it into your family, that you begin to demonstrate a fearlessness with regard to your past because Christ has overcome it. And not only has he overcome it, but he wants to use it for you to serve others who also struggle. James said it best, I will quote him until the day I die, that God wants to take your malady and turn it into your ministry. The thing that you believe makes you unlovable is actually the very thing I believe that God wants to use to reach others for his gospel. If you are an alcoholic, you will be far more likely to hear a message of hope from a former alcoholic. I can tell you about Jesus all day long. I will tell you about Jesus all day long. (laughs) But my hope is that so will other alcoholics in this church who have found freedom. If you've been sexually abused, you need to hear a message of hope from someone who's been sexually abused. It's not just theory anymore, right? I mean, this is like their lived experience. It's so important that you get this. I hope you're able to hear my heart this morning. My prayer is that we, like our forefathers, like Paul, would become decent dissenters, that we would be fully submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, every aspect of our life, every practice of our life, but that we would do so with grateful hearts despite the circumstances, with a deep commitment to prayer and with empathy to those who suffer around us. This is a world that desperately needs men and women to stand up for the truth of God to speak truth to power, to dissent against anything that would violate our conscience, but to do so with the heart of Christ, with the fruit of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we submit ourselves to you anew here this morning with the deep conviction that Jesus is Lord over all. Help us repent in ways where we have not been fully submitted to him, where we have compromised, where we have moved the line. And help us, God, with boldness in ways where we maybe could have been more vocal and, and we weren't. But, but, but Lord, temper us as well by your spirit to do so decently, to do so with love, with humility, with a grateful heart. With, with kindness and gentleness and self-control. That when we speak, we would be above reproach, though people may disagree with us, they would find no fault in the way that we have conducted ourselves, Lord. We, we, we so miss this, and so help us, Lord, and correct us when we fall short of this. And, and would you work through our actions, even in spite of our failures, as you have done throughout history for your purposes, not our own, Lord. We thank you for the kindness that you've you've shown us here at this church, for for the ministry at this church, for the hope that people are given when they feel hopeless, that we only find in your son, Jesus. How we love you, how we want to honor you in every way that we can. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Yeah. We will see you next time.